Welcome to Goddard in the World podcast. I am your host, Amanda Faye Laxon, and I am speaking today to Sam Rebeline and Mike Alvarez, all-star guests of Goddard in the World podcast. We decided over the summer that since both of them had books coming out in October 2023, that I would love to have them on the podcast and instead of each of them having their own episodes, they wanted to read each other's books so that we could talk about all of it uh, during during their episode, which ended up being fantastic. As you can see, if you look at your timer, we went pretty long in our conversation. If you listen to other episodes of theirs, uh, they probably are also on the longer side. Uh, the Spooky Pod in October 2021 was Sam and Mike meeting for the first time um, over Zoom and talking about favorite horror movies and books and all of that good stuff. This podcast or th this episode, uh, we had some tech difficulties at first. I was too, uh, like just so eager to talk to both of them because I had just read both of their books that I was like, oh, fuck it. Let, let's just start. Let's go on Zoom and, and record it and hopefully it'll be okay. And unfortunately it was. But <laughs> what ended up happening is that we just kind of start in the middle. I don't really do an intro for either of them until about the middle of the talk. So I will intro their books right before they do readings from their books. So just just so you know, that's why that happened. I prepared for the interview because I do that. But <laughs> I wanted to talk about the kind of intersection that there are books occupied, like in body horror, in grief and loss and how their characters are dealing with it. Um, so these are very very different books uh, to to read. You would probably not necessarily see them on the same list, but these guys are amazing. I highly, highly recommend that you read both of their books. Uh, you don't have to read them at once like I did, but I think they have both accomplished like stunning, stunning work. And I'm just so excited that they're they have written something that I feel will resonate out in the community to a great extent. There will be a ton of spoilers for both of their books. So if you are the type of person who does not like spoilers, please turn off this podcast. Go buy their books. You'll see the links in the show notes. So if you don't want any spoilers, pause the podcast. See you next month uh, with our next interviews or go back and listen to Sam and Mike's previous interviews on this podcast um, because they're just like a blast. If you have read their books, please comment or let us know who you would dream cast in either of their books, because that was an issue that we were having, uh, especially with Mike's book, with young Filipino actors, young male Filipino actors and older Filipino male actors. So, um, yeah. So if you could give us some tips, that would be amazing. 
And Sam's, I feel, is going to be a movie at some point because it really just is super cinematic in that sense. If you don't mind spoilers, I don't. I personally don't mind spoilers because if if a story is compelling enough, then I will enjoy it anyway. So if you don't mind spoilers, go ahead and listen <laughs> to this podcast, and um, I hope it will encourage you to read their books because they've both written truly amazing work. So please enjoy. I feel like we've had a number of like weird, different, like a nice variety of different tech issues in the Oh, it's Mercury so. Retrograde, you guys. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, could, that must be it. <laughs> I just remembered. So oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so we have a big super moon coming our way. Um, oh, like big. What is it? Blue harvest moon. Some kind of. Wow. Um, It won't happen again until 2039 or something (gasps) like that. So burn burn some stuff. Do some good intentioning. Okay. Is that what it's for? (laughs) The big moon? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think if if it's a harvest moon, it's technically like it's supposed to be about reaping something like you've done okay. a good job over the last few months or, or like whatever you've done yeah. over the last few months is now like you're you seeing get the, the rewards. Yeah. 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 Um, cool. So I don't know. Nice. I was a lazy piece of shit this summer. So I, that's what you're I'm going to reap those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not really. I mean, I did a lot of writing, but I didn't exercise at all. Oh. Um, so whatever, you know, <laughs> it's too hot to exercise like yeah this is yeah oh, you're you're reaping different rewards yeah. where are you uh, now sam yeah. uh i'm back in poughkeepsie i did uh, okay. a semester of my phd um and i just wasn't working on the novel because i was doing homework you know which was fun for a bit i was like i have homework again and then i was like not doing the thing that i wanted to do because I had homework and I was like, well, no one's making me do this. So I left the program and, and tech like Lubbock in general was not my jam. Um, very tough in West Texas desert. Mm-hmm. heat. Um, so I'm back in New York now um, in Poughkeepsie and yeah, feel a lot more uh, calm and grounded here. You know, if I need an abortion, I can get one. Oh, um, good. I like, <laughs> um, you know, the people that I love have rights here. Yes. Um, yes. So whatever. But where are you now? Oh, I'm still in New Hampshire, but I was okay, in nice. but I was in Rosendale, New York um, a few weeks. Oh, ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, right yeah. 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 That is so close to me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't even realize you were there. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine yeah. you were in Texas. So I'm like, OK, when you when we emailed and you had said yeah. you were just right there. I'm like, oh, yeah. The yeah, race Rosendale has its creature features and they were they had posters yes. for upcoming creature features. That's uh, awesome. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to leave all this in. Um, right. <laughs> um, Curtis just bought the like universal horror, like classic universal horror Blu-ray oh, um, set. You know, this is just like his teenage self's dream is that he has like enough money to buy these things that he's always wanted. <laughs> so, <laughs> Creature from the Black yeah. Lagoon was like, a big one that he wanted to watch because the guy oh. just died. Um, well, like a few months ago. Yeah. And br- like a few months before that, we had been with my family in Wakulla Springs, Florida, which is like 
where they filmed it, I think. Um, And so we took this like little airboat tour, like just like on this lagoon or river. It's like a little river. And they pointed out, oh, this is where, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon was filmed. And Curtis is like, (laughs) as much as he says that, which is not, you know, but he was like, whoa, cool. (laughs) Those those I love those movies. Um, And actually, have you heard of this game, Amanda? Horrified? No. Okay, this game rules. Uh, It's a collaborative game. You're playing as a team which Mm -hmm. uh, was key for my mom and I in the pandemic because the trash talk during Yahtzee, which we played endlessly, was getting really intense. Yeah, Um, it does get really (laughs) intense. I I mean, we did that like years ago, Curtis. (laughs) But the pre-pandemic, it was just like, you know, gambling. Yeah, You're working as a team to um, save the town from all the the classic universal monsters. Um, (gasps) And uh, it's it's very difficult and very fun. Okay. Um, And we, we played it a bunch. And now there's like, there's an American, like horrified American monsters, which is like United States urban legends, like um, the Wendigo, uh, the Jersey devil, stuff like that. Um, Ooh, so that's that's cool. a really fun one although that one i think is more difficult um, yeah i gotta but, check that maybe i'll get that for curtis's birthday in october when this is gonna air <laughs> so, oh my gosh yeah. wow yeah perfect time <laughs> for this birthday gift yeah that's awesome cool well as i said we're keeping this all in because i love you guys and i love our banter and so <laughs> i spent um the last few days listening to our old podcasts um not all the podcasts with sam because he was our co-host last my co-host last season but your original solo podcasts and then the the spooky episode <laughs> i love that one <laughs> it was it was so good i was like oh shit this conversation is awesome and so i got really excited like for this com- our conversation right now but it's so funny because those were all in 2021 and it's wow. 2023, summer 2023 now. And so it's been two years, which feels crazy. Like, yeah, that feels crazy. I mean, I guess I, I had a child. since <laughs> so It's been, I guess that could mark some time, but like, it does not feel that long ago since, since we did that. But Mike, oh, it feels you were the f- like a long time ago to me. Really? Yeah. To you. Well, I will say for Sam, because you guys bookended the first season. And in Sam's episode, you were talking that you were working on a story about cursed wood. <laughs> and just like kind of a throwaway thing. You're like, oh yeah, uh, I'm working on a story about cursed wood. Um, so listening to it like yesterday, I was like, hey. <laughs> oh my god hey wow. i know what that is like and and then in the conversation with mike you're like oh yeah i'm excited i'm working on a novel now and whatever and you're like that was like what was thrilling you or scaring you or both <laughs> like yeah. oh my gosh yeah. well and and where were you in the process because i uh you say at some point uh in unraveling mike uh and we're we're in it now no we're like, in it hello we're in welcome it. to the show yeah well welcome to um, the show but also like we're in it maybe i'll um, record an intro later <laughs> amazing um 
But so you you say at some point in unraveling that you put down the like memoiry part of unraveling for like a decade, right? And so where were you in like August of 2021 when we last recorded mm-hmm. in, in the process of writing this? Where where was the book two years mm-hmm. ago? It was actually I was not really going anywhere. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was working on other things. I at the time I was working on the COVID a book on death and dying during COVID-19, which I still have to finish by after Labor Day. <laughs> but it's almost done. But where oh, was un- it, it is it is finally, right? Uh, um but where was unraveling? So I I mean I because it was, was the color of dusk. It yeah, was still it, it, called it, the color of dusk. It was oh, okay. still called the color of dusk. Mm-hmm. Um and well that it was my MFA thesis, at least the memoir. The, the personal narrative component, mm-hmm. and then I had set it aside. I, I believe I was still, I was still, I had, I had an agent representing the work at the time. But what happened in 2022 was that at the beginning of 2022, my agent left her agency, mm-hmm. and she couldn't really take her her authors with her to her new agency, oh, and I, I. It, but I also it was and and I've also worked with this agent for quite some time. She represented my first book, but mm. I also saw the potential for it going in another direction because so 2021 it was not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in 2022 <laughs> okay. it was um, I ended up taking it into a different direction. So I revised the the narrative itself and decided to also add these. Um, book ending it with these analytical chapters that you have both read, and mm-hmm. um, and it ended up being being an academic book. So it ended up with an academic publisher, and it, it really is that um, one thing after another. I ended up under the mentorship of um, this you know amazing writer, woman, scholar Carolyn Ellis. She's a professor emerita at um, University of South Florida. And oh. she is also called the mother of father ethnography. So I came under her mentorship in my last semester in as a postdoc. And then she is like, she's one of the co-editors of this series, like Writing Lives, that's published okay. by Routledge. So that's how it that came to be, is that I decided to take it in this new direction. But I'll say that turning it into this hybrid creative scholarly work made the work actually feel complete having the chance mm. to reflect on it. But yes, long-winded answer to your question, but where was it in 2021? It was still titled The Color of Dusk and it was uh, it was collecting dust. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you had already published, I mean, I, I think at the time you had already published like, chapters of it or or sections of it and isn't that right and yeah I, journals or something yeah I've, I've published a bunch of things so um like one like really small excerpts here and there like there were a bunch of excerpts of my time in the mental hospital that were re, re, like repackaged as a as a standalone piece in this web zine uh, mad in america science psychiatry and social justice and then i published a chapter in its first draft at a a journal for called the awakenings review which is a literary journal by and for people with mental health Mm. struggles and a few other venues so yeah it's it's like maybe i would say four or five different excerpts have been published 
published in a variety of places. But it's nice to see it come together, of course. Of course. Of course. Uh, should I be professional <laughs> and actually like introduce it? Why don't we go ahead? Like, okay, Mike, you're gonna be up first. So okay. <laughs> um, so I I will have this in the show show notes, but the book that we are talking about is Mike Alvarez's Unraveling an Autoethnography of Suicide and Renewal. It is an autoethnographic story that explores the intricate relationship among trauma, marginality, and mental health. It follows Mike Alvarez, a precocious gay teenager from an immigrant Filipino family who loses his grip on reality as he succumbs to so-called mental illness. Divided into two parts, the first half of the book uses evocative storytelling and in-the-moment narration to capture the slow descent into anxiety anxiety, paranoia, depression, and suicidality as experienced by the author during young adulthood. The second half of the book critically reflects upon the story through a series of analytic chapters. In these chapters, the author considers the role of narrative in cultivating empathy for the mentally ill, the psychiatric industrial complex's obstruction of that empathy, and the moral dilemmas autoethnographers face when writing about self, other, and the social world. Mike, do you have a section of the piece that you wanted to read with us? Yeah, I, I actually, well, you know, this morning I was trying to decide what to read, and I, I know you said 10 minutes. So I actually have two that cumulatively okay. add up to 10 minutes, if right. um, if that is all right. So yeah. the first short piece that I'm going to read is the prologue to the narrative itself. Okay. As soon as I walk through the sliding doors, I heard a scream. The EMT escorting me from the ambulance didn't seem faced by it but I could feel the hair on my arms and neck rise as if electrically charged. The nurse manning the front desk asked me to sit, so I did. She disappeared behind the wood panel door. Minutes later, she reappeared with a white styrofoam tray. You look hungry, she said, placing the tray on my lap. Why don't you eat while we get the paperwork started? I looked at the tray's contents, applesauce, buttered bread, turkey with gravy, chocolate milk. They reminded me of grade school, of childhood simplicity. But when I peeled the plastic wrap, I noticed there was no knife, just a spork, napkin, and straw. The moment I dipped the spork into the applesauce, the piercing scream returned. This time, it didn't stop. There was no mistaking it. The scream belonged to a child. I imagined a boy no older than eight, helpless, Pinned to the ground by two orderlies, his voice the last remnant of his agency. Terror-stricken by the sight of a needle in gloved hands, the boy would kick and flail and then yelp when the needle finally broke skin. I almost lost my appetite. The scream turned into quiet sobs until all I could hear was the compressor churning in the nearby water cooler. The boy must be sedated now, lying in a pool of urine. Saliva trickling down his chin. His hand and face, his white t-shirt and trousers would be caked with feces, or so I imagined. The silence was unnerving. I looked in the child's direction, but concrete walls obstructed my view. Powerless, I resumed eating. The applesauce was runny, the turkey dry, and the bread stale, 
but I wolfed them down all the same. For weeks, I'd eaten nothing but crackers and soda. The nurse returned with a wooden clipboard. If you could just sign these when you're ready, she said. I looked over the forms, reading only the bold and italicized letters before signing away my claim to normalcy. The fluorescent lights overhead lost their intensity, the white walls their glow. Even the pervasive smell of hand sanitizer was suddenly neutralized. My perceptions no longer belonged to me. Here, I would be told what I was seeing, thinking, feeling. And um, so the second excerpt is uh, later on in the narrative, uh, but it goes back in time to Mike Alvarez's childhood. Um, and it's interlude four. You pulled me and Matt aside, telling us to record a National Geographic special for Uncle Dugan. The program is two hours with no commercials, you said. All you have to do is press the record button at nine. Understood? SP or EP, I asked. EP, you replied. Aside from painting and playing all sorts of musical instruments, Uncle Dugan loved watching and recording nature videos. Nearly 200 VHS tapes lined the walls of his room, plus the ones he'd stowed away. There were so many. I didn't understand what tonight's special added, but it was a simple enough request. I'd been getting up at 6.30 each morning to record my favorite cartoons shows, so I'd actually become good at using the VHS player. Remember, 9 o'clock, you said sternly. Okay, my brother and I said at once. Now go help your mother. Matt and I helped mother carry the food trays downstairs to the studio. It was Friday, after all. Uncle's band would be having rehearsals, and after that, there would be a feast. Soon after sundown, everyone gathered on the first floor. My aunts brought their homemade flan and methodically arranged the food and drinks on the table. Even Grandma Lilay made an appearance, sporting her black wig. I told her she'd look more stylish without it, but she wouldn't believe me. The band played jazz music, and Mother, their vocalist, sang with them. The bar in front of the kitchen gave the studio a speakeasy's atmosphere, where people entered into side conversations. Mr. Motherland, one of the guests asked you. Beer in hand, you replied, I miss being the boss. Tell me about it, said the guest. I went, on, I went from lawyer to office clerk when we came to the States. How's the job hunt going? I've got a few leads. Your conversation got boring quickly, so I decided to play with the other children at the table. What are you guys up to? I asked as I nibbled on tortilla chips. Nothing, just talking about the Power Rangers. Cool. I love the Power Rangers, I exclaimed. Power Rangers was my favorite part about coming home from school. And one of my favorite things, period, since coming to America. I wouldn't miss an episode for the world. I invited the other kids upstairs to the TV room to play Super Nintendo with me and my brother. After that, we role-played, each taking on the role of our favorite ranger. I couldn't decide between Billy, the blue ranger, and Jason, the red ranger, on whom I secretly had a crush. I found myself switching roles, much to the annoyance of my playmates. We made all the noises we could make, running down the hall and screaming at the top of our lungs. With the band rehearsing downstairs, there was no way the grown-ups could hear us. That evening, we played the role of children to our heart's content, 
we were so immersed in our fantasy that I'd completely forgotten the task assigned to us. The guests left at midnight. By one in the morning, all traces of merriment had been wiped clean. You came back upstairs in a far less pleasant mood, asking, where's the video I'd asked you to record? Silence. Neither Matt nor I knew how to respond. With clenched teeth, you began to speak in a dangerously low voice. You mean to tell me that you forgot? Forgot something as simple as pressing a button? And then the dreaded words, go get the broom. No, not the broomstick, I squealed. Which one of you is going to get it? I walked slowly to the kitchen, where the broom leaned against the wall, between the garbage pail and refrigerator. Its wooden handle was thin and circular, the the circumference no larger than a nickel's. From past experience, I'd come to learn that the thinner the handle, the more painful the blow. Hurry up, you shouted. My hands shook as I grabbed the broom. They continued shaking when I returned to your room to hand it to you. They still shook when I went face down on the floor. I thought I could contain myself, but when you said, 30 whippings each, I sobbed. 30? I didn't know you could go so high. You'd never gone that high. At your command, we bared our buttocks. Over the years, you'd learned of children's devious ways that sometimes we wore extra layers of clothing to buffer the blows. You alternated between me and Matt, striking both hard and fast. Each strike made a whistling sound as it sliced the air, and layered on top of that sound were our tiny whimpers and your loud grunts. I imagined, because that was all I could do. I imagined the Power Rangers riding their zords, swerving around the Empire State Building as millions of people looked up into the sky. The rangers would crash through the window and shoot at you with laser beams until the maniacal Rita Repulsa throws down her magic staff from her tower in the moon, turning you into one hideous giant putty. In a stunning display of thunderbolts and pyrotechnics, the rangers would call on their zords one last time and banish you into oblivion. At 15, the whipping stopped. That's all you two are getting today, he said. The rest will come later. You should be grateful. It was difficult to be grateful when the deferral of blows meant the deferral of worry-free days. Then you added, in the meantime, you're both grounded. Grounded, I asked. I knew what the word meant. It was just unlike you to dole out such an American punishment. Yes, grounded. That means no toys, no video games no television, and no Power Rangers. That was the last straw. I cried even harder than before. Not my Power Rangers! Matt wasn't crying, but his eyes were red and watery. It was like being told we could no longer see our friends. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Mike. Great reading. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it really brings brings it viscerally to, together or to life. As you were talking earlier, this this is an autoethnography, and you know, I'm glad that you read from the narrative. I'm glad you read from the narrative. Also, people who have, first of all, people who have not read either of these books, um, there will be spoilers. <laughs> So please, please read this, read the books. But, um, but I remember, uh, 
reading in the the reflection chapters uh re- it's called the reflect the reflection chapters at the end of the book the the 30 um uh, the number 30 uh being echoed in the cuts the self mutilation like later uh or, or is it be- right before the i think it, it might be it might have happened right before it's right before in the, the, this. the cut sequence comes first and you actually mm-hmm. open the book with that cut sequence right like we're kind of primed with that excerpt from the beginning or maybe that's in um the introduction um that someone else wrote but i remember that being sort of a centerpiece oh. of like the beginning of the book is like okay this is where we're going to arrive at some point is this mm-hmm. scene in the shower right right it was in the yeah yeah that was the very beginning of the book the the first there was a passage straight from that chapter that's in the introduction that mm-hmm. it's just a direct quote that i put in the introduction of the book yeah yeah um, good good memory So we're like primed to unravel this story to that point uh, from the beginning, right? That we're like, okay, why is this happening? Why is this number significant? And so like functionally, that's sort of the the purpose of that scene that you just read to me that like, here's why that scene in the shower is happening. Here's why that number is significant. And you talk about, about that in the reflections too, like Amanda said, right? I do, I do. And and the thing about that is, so when I, I wrote, when I was, this was part of my MFA thesis at Goddard, and when I wrote the scene, the self-mutilation scene, I, I mean, yes, I, I mean, the, the number 30 was very significant. And then I wrote about the childhood episode where my brother and I were supposed to receive 30 whippings each, but we only got half. And then, but the thing is, I didn't really make that connection until I already started writing. The, mm. the the other ethnography itself, those reflection chapters, that connection kind of click, and I had mm. an oh shit moment. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, actually that, you know. <laughs> I mean, there were some insights that came about as a result of me being in psychotherapy, but this particular number, which I didn't really think much about in the course of writing these um, these pieces, uh, the significance of it actually dawned on me during the writing of the reflection, which is also what makes this, the addition of these reflections um, may, make the work more complete for me, at least. Mm. And, 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 and the thing with autoethnography is, I mean, yes, it is a, you know, it's a, it's autobiography and ethnography. It's using one's personal experiences to look at larger um, social, cultural, historical forces. But it's also, I mean, it is a method, you know, I mean, and it's also, I, I mean, we in Goddard, in the IMA program that uh, Amanda and I attended, we talk about writing, not just as a way of documenting things after we have done the analyses, but writing itself as a method, as a way of inquiry. And in some ways, mm-hmm. that lesson um, made itself apparent to me because as I was writing those re- reflection chapters, that connection between those two became yeah. more apparent. Yeah, like I as as some people know and as mike knows um i'm on the transformative language arts network board and i have approached mike to like become a member because the the work that you're doing right now is very much um in that spirit um where the idea is using writing the whether it's written spoken or sung written or spoken or sung word for personal and community transformation. And so the memoir itself would have been transformative. Um, but then 
the autoethnography part, at, you know, where you're reflecting on the process of writing this memoir, because some people I imagine would write a memoir and that that's the story. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not going to analyze it more. You got it. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but the fact that you also like dig into the, these significances, like, you know, even the, the process of you writing the reflection, which I know was a later addition to the process of writing this whole book, like showed you something new, which is pretty awesome. Well, it's fascinating to read as a as a fellow Goddardite Goddardian. <laughs> Goddardite um, sounds like Cenobite, which I prefer. Oh, okay, there, Goddardite. Yeah. So it's like it, it feels like reading uh, your book and then reading your process papers, and you even quote some of your process papers in the reflections. And so, um, and I actually have a question about that because I I did it. I found it oddly comforting in that it threw me back to my time at Goddard, where I was reading a lot of memoirs because I started as a memoirist, and then I felt like horror was a sort of like nicer to me uh, lens to talk about some of the issues that like I wanted to write memoir about, you know, so I read a lot of the memoirs that you talk about, like Girl Interrupted and The Kiss um, and The Kiss is so upsetting in like such a, like in a positive way, like it's a very effective book, but the whole time you're just like, Oh, please stop going to these hotels. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, so my question is like it's um, some of the books that I read in my time at Goddard do some of the braiding technique um, that you talk about in the reflections, but with the academic stuff. So they'll weave some of the reflections that they're making about their story into the story itself. And I wondered if that was ever um, something that you thought of as part of the process and like decided, no, I'm going to do two separate chunks, like the memoir and then the reflection on the memoir, or if it was ever more fluid than that. Not that I think either one is like better than the other, but I'm just curious about your process about like deciding the structure of the book. Yeah, I mean, I did consider that at some point, especially when I made the decision to contextualize the work itself within the scholarly literature and larger conversations about mental health, suicide, trauma. And I thought about... Um, creating, I guess, what other ethnographers would call a layered account, where you do braid, where you present like personal narratives, but then contextualize it um, within a piece. But then I thought it might be too much for readers to, because I already go back. I mean, the the structure of the individual chapters are, I mean, they they follow a loose chronological order, but as you can see, they're very fragmented. They're meant to evoke the fragmentation of madness, and then and then there are these childhood interludes that um, that are sandwiched between the young adult chapters. And then I thought, oh, it, I, I I just I had considered braiding the academic and the um, the more you know thematic discussions into into the narrative, but then decided against it because I, I just imagined it might be a bit much. It's a lot of threads, and then yeah. to go from young adulthood to childhood, and then to childhood to more academic discussions. It would have been. I mean, I will say though that like uh, I, Catherine Harrison did it so well. I mean, she was able to weave her her reflections as an adult, and her she also 
incorporated episodes from her childhood and she tackled them within the same chapters and she did it so gracefully and I said I can't pull that off (laughs) (laughs) I mean maybe with a different kind of work I can pull it off but maybe I think it might be I might end up overwhelming and the readers Uh, speaking of which I mean this is a bit of a side note but I, 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 I know that you started as a as a, with memoir and and then I thought like maybe you can write a memoir using the conventions of horror and uh, <laughs> I mean yeah. I think that's quite the I thought about that and I, it, this is just a random thought that came into my mind I mean there are, there are definitely ways to marry those two genres in a in a very um, exciting way I think yeah I, and that was initially sort of my pitch for um, the beginning of my process at Goddard where I was like I want to you know, um, someone says something traumatic, uh, and instead of the thing that they're saying, spiders come out of their mouth, right? Um, and so it's a way to like sort of symbolize um, the topics that I wanted to talk about without, you know, really getting into the abuse. I, and I've said this uh, on the in my episode before. Um, the thing I was writing a memoir about when I was six, I was uh, sexually molested by a neighbor. Um, who was 13. And um, so that was, I came into Goddard. I was like, I'm going to tell my story. And uh, the more I spent time on it and the more I focused on it, the more I was like, now I'm just doing exactly what you say in the introduction to this book, where I'm like, I'm re-traumatizing myself by like just sitting in it and writing these scenes. And so how can I make it more palatable? And so what I started to sort of figure out is like the therapy for me in writing isn't so much like, looking at six-year-old Sam in these particular scenes, but instead saying like, well, what was comforting to six-year-old Sam? You know, instead, six-year-old Sam really liked Jurassic Park and, um, you know, Beetlejuice. And so those are the stories that I started to gravitate more towards. And then I was just writing horror. And then I realized like, oh, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. You know, like narratives like The Babadook and um, Hereditary, I think really proved that you can tell these very personal stories through metaphor. Um, not that Edenville is very like personal, <laughs> relatively. Well. Um, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, on that, on that note, I like, was listening to your podcast, Sam, the other day. And in that episode, you were talking about how you had moved from Brooklyn to Poughkeepsie and mm-hmm. <laughs> during the pandemic. And I'm like, I, I, I wrote it down, like I put it in my Evernote or something because I was just like, Hang on. <laughs> I'm like, that's Cam and Quinton. Yeah. And you know, what's really funny. I I shared it with um, a few friends, uh, one of whom is my friend Finn. We've been friends for a long time. Um, And he was a theater major at New Paltz. And at one point we're reading through it and he's like, hold on, pause for a second. Their names are Cam and Quinn. And he has a writing MFA and she's a theater major and our names are Sam and Vin. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's too funny. Was um, this intentional or was it like Mike not, went not at, at the process? Yeah, yeah it just, it, it just such a yeah. funny coincidence. It's um, amazing. But yeah, you, you know, Edenville really, uh, even though it's not like, like I, I have written many stories where I'm like, here is my all the like malaise and depression and, and negativity from the pandemic. 
um, in a ghost story, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. So I, I have written a lot of stories that do do that, like telling something personal through a horror lens. Um, and if you like look at it with a literary tilt, like if you look at the story itself, you're just like, oh, that's spooky. Uh, but if you look at it with the literary tilt, you're like, okay, here's where it's working. Um, but Edenville really was just like a nightmare escape of like, you know, uh, during the pandemic, I was in uh, locked down with my mom upstate um, and she loves sunflowers and there are sunflowers all over the house, <laughs> like on the pillows and on the wallpaper. Um, and so that was something that was very like sort of oppressive to me just because I spent so much time in the house. Inside, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so now everyone's sending me like pictures of sunflowers and it's like the whole marketing for the book is sunflowers. And I'm just like, Oh, that's great. You know? it's, <laughs> so yeah. It's like, I mean, when you read the book, sunflowers are not a positive like, force <laughs> in the book. They're definitely an omen of something or, you know, they, they don't feel comforting, the sunflowers. And the fact yeah. that sunflowers like turn their heads freak kind of freaks me out you know like i think some people love that but like i'm like like stop i know they're living things but like come on yeah they have their (laughs) own like strange thing going on because they're not like directly related to any of the conflicts in the book um they're just sort of watching everything um and so yeah, I don't know. I guess there's another story hiding in there about like how the sunflowers see things and what they know and how they communicate with each other. And like they even communicate with some people like they if you wave to them, they'll wave back, you know. But it's just funny that like that was, sort of became the personal thing in Edenville. It's just all these elements that in the year or two that I was writing it um, were just sort of eerie to me. And like, you know, my mother lives in a neighborhood with a lot of little old ladies and a lot of them are very sweet, but some of them are just the gossipiest, most backstabbingest (laughs) people I've ever met. Um, Like to the point where she's like, Oh, there's more neighborhood drama today. And I'm like, this is like high school levels of nonsense. (laughs) Um, So um, that was, that was why old ladies became sort of an antagonistic force in the book. Cause I was like, I want people to, to see that, I don't know, anybody can have fun being a villain, you know, like a villain is always the best, like the bad guys in star Wars always have the coolest lightsabers and like, Mm -hmm. you know, the most interesting deaths, you know, um, and things like that. So that was really something that I worked for in this book. It's like, how can I make the villains the most interesting, intriguing people and like the most interesting parts to play if this ever, you know, becomes a movie or whatever. And so the old ladies were like thing number one that I was like, let's make them something that old lady actors could have fun, you know, playing with. I love that. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I love that part because um, you know I, I associate like I mean I have I have a, a, a maternal grandmother that I love very much and it, I do write about this in unraveling and um, I, but so I have this association with mar- warmth and you know like warm like brownies in the oven yeah. with old ladies and to have that <laughs> subverted by Edenville was a treat. <laughs> and, Thanks, I'm glad. 
and the sunflowers too. It 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 just reminded me like the these voyeuristic sunflowers. It's just um, it reminded me of those solar operated dancing flowers. If you if you're familiar oh, with them. yeah, right. yeah. Someone gave me one like for like from work or whatever when I was in an office, and they gave me one at like as a going away. I'm like, this is weird. Yeah, <laughs> but thank yeah. you. Well, it's funny. I just rewatched. Um, I haven't seen it since I was like 12, but last night I just rewatched the Truman show. Oh, I, I love like that. that yeah. Same sort of atmosphere of like every camera angle that's from his point of view is just the widescreen, but every camera that's watching him, you can see just in the way it's filmed that it's like inside a button or like a trash right. can or something. Um, and just this feeling of like, you are always being watched wherever mm. you go. It is an anxiety that I have. And I also like um, to sort of segue back to your book or like between our books, Mike, so many, I was surprised how much of that memoir section resonated with me. Cause I, as a kid growing up, I had a lot of those same sorts of spirals of anxiety where like, and even into like my young adulthood, like the brief period of time when I would smoke cigarettes occasionally and like flick a cigarette butt onto the ground. And I'd be like, well, they're going to DNA test it and find out that I was the one who like flicked it there and they're going to find me and like all this stuff that I was just like that calm down. <laughs> you know? um, so a lot of that really resonated. Like every stomach ache I got when I was like eight, I was like, this is it. I'm done. You know? Um, so yeah, a lot of those anxieties sort of work their way into my fiction too. But that was something that I wanted to remark on about your book where I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, this sounds familiar. Yeah. But. I mean, I think that, I, and I also, I mean, I'm glad, I mean, thank you for, for, for um, knowing that because I mean, in some ways, one of the things that I was hoping to accomplish with this book is at least to, well, of, of course, the, the humanizing what we think of as pathological, but that uh, so many of, ex uh, granted, these experiences that I document are, are you know, they, they are taken to their extremes, but they are something that we all experience in varying doses. And I, I like to even think of my Again, those uh, those paranoia and moments of anxiety, in some ways, are reminiscent of childhood grandi grandiosity. Um, the, like the, yeah. not just childhood, but even adolescence and young adulthood. Like because even as children, we have these grandiose thinkings where we inflate. Um, well, we inflate both our our our, our omnipotence uh, as children but we also inflate our vulnerability as children and that we think that the thing that we have done is so bad that it will be cataclysmic to all those around us um so and in some ways these so-called symptoms that mike in the narrative goes through are are those kinds of fears so i mean i it does it makes me you know happy to know that it was relatable in some way because again i don't want I want to. I wanted to write this book in a way that you know makes these experiences human rather than abnormal and yeah. logical. Well, I think you articulate that really well in the reflections again, where you're like, these aren't. Um, you know, when we talk about people with suicidal ideations or, or whatever it may be, like that isn't. Uh, it, it. They're just they have what we all have. It's just cranked up a lot, right? Like, and that's something that I always talk about when people are like, why do you write horror? Which is also the only genre that people like interrogate you. <laughs> like if I wrote sci-fi, no one would ask why. Mm -hmm. um, but 
that is usually my answer. Where I'm like, well, I'm afraid of a lot of stuff all the time anyway. So as long as I can share that with other people and then get the feedback that they're afraid of those same things and, you know, try to have like a communal aspect to it, um, then that feels way healthier to me than just sort of like keeping it and sitting in it, you know. I, 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 there's something you said earlier actually made me think about our last um, conversation, the spooky pod conversation the we spooky had. Spooky pod. The spooky pod. I should elongate the O, actually. <laughs> I, I wrote it with like five O's. <laughs> right, right. I saw that. The spooky pod. Because we, uh, when you were discussing earlier how you had considered writing, you know, memoir you through the through the through the conventions of horror, but then you use horror as a way of, um, in some ways. At, through metaphor, uh, addressing traumatic circumstances, and and it just reminded me of how we had we had discussed how for the traumatized horror is a source of comfort, and yeah. in in many ways that it speaks to our anxieties and and concerns about the world and the people in it, and you know the, the potential for for harm that lurks in every corner uh, and horror is such a great way of, um, of just exploring that symbolically. But also it, it brought to mind how we had discussed how these creatures and these, these creatures or these, these slasher antagonists are in some ways for the traumatized, um, like patron saints for the, for the, for the wronged. And I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here because, uh, again, when when I was reading Edenville, I was I, I I was drawing connections between the resonances between your work and mine because mm-hmm. in some ways they are both horror. They are both they are both like one is a um, literal horror and the other one is a, you know, metaphoric horror. But they yeah. are both they are both horror and and I I really. I, I I just you know I, there there was there is something about the work that you have produced, but also horror works that are done well in general that um, speak to the traumatized child in that actually provide paradoxical comfort. Well, that's it, it's fascinating that you say because I um, thinking of the narrative about uh, your father. Um, you know, a lot of the driving emotional force behind Edenville was narcissistic entities. And like, you know, even the mind that governs the multiverse is like sort of a narcissistic asshole entity. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, um, <laughs> and anyone who like tries to sort of interrogate, even the philosopher high is met with this wall of like, ah, be- because I said so, and I'm God and whatever, um, you know, and, and so to, like think about the ways that that might resonate with someone who's um, facing that sort of entity in their own life and in their own childhood, you know, just the sort of like the tallest glass in the house, right. Um, Is uh, that central, like, I don't even know how to articulate. Like, I'm very excited about this idea. I can't articulate it. (laughs) Well, but you know what I mean? That like, that's just what comes to mind when you're like this, this resonates with me. Like I, can see the ways in which that might be. And I actually wrote down too um, the specific horror text, the specific horror texts that you note in Unraveling. You talk about Jeepers Creepers, Candyman, Sin City, and not a piece of horror. Well, not necessarily a piece of horror, but certainly has some horrific imagery in it. Fern Gully, 
um, which I also love uh, and have been meaning to rewatch. And then you said it and I was like, oh, I really got to <laughs> check this out again. It's been too long. But that, you know, Tim Curry as the um, I forget his character's name, but the like smog monster. Right. Um, is, is pretty horrific. Um, but I wonder if like those were all intentional, specific choices to bring up or if those were just like you just happen to remember, oh, we watched Jeepers Creepers that day or if that specific text has any significance beyond that. I mean, I didn't even think about the significance because that, that we were watching Jeepers Creepers. <laughs> okay, great. I, because it, my, my dorm friends and I were um, were thinking of movies to watch and I happened to have Jeepers Creepers and I'm like, sure, let's let's watch this. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. But I'm glad that it had this additional, you know, um, effect. It's inclusion in the narrative. Well, yeah, talk was... to me about Jeepers Creepers because I don't I haven't seen that one. So, yeah, just tell me. Well, a little bit about it, how it might have resonated in that moment. Um, I'm rubbish at summaries. So. No, Sam. I was going to make Sam do it. <laughs> well, to me, it was like there's there's two layers to it, right? And I like I don't remember the full story exactly, um, but the movie itself is like Justin Long and um, his sister, who um, I don't think is played by anyone as big name as Justin Lawn. Sorry, lady. <laughs> um, I don't remember who you are. Um, but they sort of um, they're on the road and there's this big truck on the road that um, they end up like following because he cuts them off or something. And they find out that he has like bodies in the basement um, and is like killing and eating people. And he's this like weird, monstrous, unkillable entity. Um, and so the movie itself, like the story is pretty simple and Justin Long does not make it spoilers. Oh. Um, but, um, the, the other element to that, that I was curious about, uh, because I think it came out a few years ago that the guy who made these movies, um, also turned out to be a predator himself in some way was like taking advantage of young boys. And again, this is like so secondhand a few years ago and I should have looked up the story again before I brought this up. <laughs> but but that's how I was curious because I was like, oh my gosh, is this going to be in some way tied to like, you know, Mike was also a young boy that had a trauma that was body related and like, is there going to be some like thematic connection here? And I, I clearly had had too much coffee because now I'm just like <laughs> no, but I, I writing my own this. paper about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate this because I, I mean, I didn't know that about this person who who made this and and uh i i mean that there are definitely uh, it might be worth exploring why i why that particular movie gravitated with me i mean the the killer the jeepers creepers creature is also uh an old creature that maintains its life by like harvesting body parts from people and using yeah. them as its own um so that's how it regenerates right. itself that's right you forgot that yeah um, Which I, I guess there's also something now that you say that there's something positive about that as like you were talking about horror um, figures being patron saints. Like if you can find a way to um, rejuvenate yourself, right. And your body can always renew. There's something there. I don't know. There, there's a, there's an essay in this somewhere. Yeah. yeah. You're right, right. <laughs> well, you, you guys can uh, make your students, right? <laughs> right. Well, well, the title of the book, uh, the subtitle has renewal. And I'm thinking, you know, the Jeepers Creepers as a, as a, as a force of renewal <laughs> or self, self-perpetuation and renewal. I don't know. I'm oh, just man. man, we're just like <laughs> pitching, pitching articles left and right. What have we yeah. write it before someone steals it? Yeah. Someone throw money at us. Let's 
I know, seriously. <laughs> well, so speaking of, I mean, you know, it, Sam, there's there's a lot of renewal with spoilers. The character of Jop Yenigan, <laughs> um yeah. in Edenville. Um, so why don't we why don't we go to it? Be professional. <laughs> <laughs> second. I am going to read a little summary and then you can go ahead and read a selection from Edenville. Edenville, the summary, after publishing his debut novel, The Shattered Man, to disappointing sales and reviews, Campbell P. Marion is struggling to find inspiration for a follow-up. When Edenville College invites him to join as a writer-in-residence, he's convinced that his bad luck has finally taken a turn. His girlfriend, Quinn, isn't so sure. She grew up near Edenville and has good reasons for not wanting to move back. Cam disregards her skepticism and accepts the job with Quinn reluctantly following along. But there's something wrong in Edenville. Despite the charming old ladies milling about Main Street and picturesque sunflowers dotting the sidewalks, poison lurks beneath the surface. As a series of strange and ominous events escalate among Edenville and its residents, Cam and Quinn find themselves entangled in a dark and disturbing history. Sam, take it away. Wow. Thank you. What a fun... I didn't write that, and I don't know who did. Uh, it's um, your publishers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write it either. But uh, fun. Uh, I So the section I'm going to read, um, I just chose uh, a random number between 1 and 300 while you were talking, Amanda. And I Sweet. settled on... This is, <laughs> this is about halfway through the book. Uh, Cam and Quinn um, are sort of on rocky territory, and I think in some ways the book is sort of about Quinn going into like down into the depths of this codependent relationship and, and coming back out. And so they have this big argument. Um, and so after the argument, she decides to like uh, focus on, on something else uh, instead of like giving Cam more time and energy, she's going to go see what the, uh, all the little old ladies in Edenville are up to. Cause they invited her to this meeting uh, in the library basement um, and so here she's going to like angrily march over there and, and see what's up. She was so mad she didn't feel human. A furious nausea brewed in her gut and followed her overhead in the clouds. The air was humid, threatening to burst into hot rain at any second. A sob bulged in the back of Quinn's throat, tumorous and dizzying as she marched down Rackle Street to the library. Something eyed her from the edge of the parking lot. She paused, eyed the thing back. It scampered away. That's what I thought, she yelled after it. She burst through the library's double doors. Lightning strobed as she darted her eyes around the space. Five silent seconds as she took in the room. Thunder grumbled. The library was dark and purple shadowed. Light in orange strips coming through the windows from the dying sunset outside. The only light inside burned from some hall off to her left. An open doorway, brown carpeted, wood paneled. A yellow light glowed in the ceiling. A paper sign taped to the wall. Historical society. And an arrow pointing down. More thunder as Quinn took a step closer, then stopped, suddenly afraid. Afraid because she was afraid. Because she was watching herself walk willingly towards some obviously very bad thing. It was starting to storm outside. Her boyfriend was literally losing his mind and she couldn't believe how perfect it all was. How balls to the wall, very Halloween-y. Turn the fuck back. But she took another step. 
oh, so you want to die at another step? Because this is how you die, Quinn, at another. She could see now that the arrow on the sign pointed down a narrow set of shitty black stained carpeted stairs. At their bottom was a set of brown metal doors, doors meant to be thrown open, so perfect and dented that Quinn wondered if the props department had hinged them there for her. She went down a step. It creaked. She stared at the metal doors. Through their windows, she could see yellow tiled floor. She crept down another step and another. And when she finally reached the bottom, she put her hands in the bars, took a breath and shoved those doors open. The air moved as if she'd popped the lid on some pressure sealed room. Wind gusted in behind her, over her, and her hair blew all in her face, so she was temporarily blinded, and it took her a moment to register what was going on. When she did, she just said, oh, the sound you make when you walk in on someone in the bathroom, it just took her by surprise. She was standing in a large yellow linoleum room, some kind of ancient event hall. The ceilings were low and cave-like, all rock-tiled and old. Doors led off into the distances, into darknesses, and dim, blinking fluorescences. Shutters along one wall, closed against a kitchen. A light on back there, winking through the corners of the shutters. Quinn imagined after-church dinners served through that window, potluck lunches and pancakes. Even now, someone clinked around in the pots and pans, hidden behind the shutters. In the well-lit middle of this space, in this heart of some labyrinthian underground, there sat a circle of brown metal folding chairs, and in these chairs there sat many, many little old ladies. Oh, said Quinn, and all the old ladies turned to look at her. They grinned, and she recognizes some of them. Quinn, said Winnie, oh my god, you made it! I would have bet $50 she wouldn't, muttered Marsha on the far side of the circle. What made her change her mind? Cindy muttered back. Maybe something else made it up for her, said Deborah, the woman from the general store. Brenda from the shoe store leaned forward and waved to Quinn. Hi there. Hello. Hello, said Quinn. She wanted to add, I'll just be backing away now because she had seen enough TV to know that she should absolutely not, not ever, under any circumstances... Have a seat, said Brenda. She gestured to a short stack of chairs leaning against one of the columns holding up the ceiling. Quinn didn't move. I didn't mean to barge in like that, she said. Oh, not at all, said Winnie. We wanted you to come. So many don't, said Marcia. But we all did, said Winnie, pointing a finger around the circle. Her wrist jingled with golden gaudy baubles. Her nails were deep red. Everyone here came, and that's always the first step. So she pushed hair delicately out of her face, like obviously the fact that they were all in this room right now made them all very special and strong. It probably did. Quinn didn't know, and she didn't really want to know. Didn't need to know anything more about what was happening here, why they were all gathered underground, leering, peering at her over their little glasses from under their stiff wigs. This was a mistake. She didn't know what she'd expected. But when she took a step back, they all tensed, lifted an inch out of their chairs. She froze again, palms up. Don't shoot. Have a seat, Quinn, said Brenda. Please, no need to run away. She laughed. You're safe here. I see, said Quinn. She moved her eyes around the circle and found Greta Marie Mithers sitting with her arms crossed. She looked even more wrung out up close. She must have only been in her late 40s, but she looked so gaunt and tired that she fit right in with the rest of them. 
She offered Quinn a limp smile. Plenty of chairs, said Cindy. She nodded at them, the chairs. Go ahead, pull up a seat. Go on, they all murmured and nodded. We're so happy you made it. Cop a squat, sister, have a seat. Saved one for you. Quinn shook her head slow. Thank you very much. But, well, she glanced at Greta. Greta's resemblance to Clarity Mither was striking, and subsequently her resemblance to Celeste. Okay, Quinn threw up her hands. Sure, why not? Which felt like the stupidest thing she had ever done. But what was she supposed to do? Not have a seat? How far into the rabbit hole would you allow yourself to fall if it was you here in Renfield County? She felt squeezed under the weight of their eyes as she grabbed a chair and scraped it across the floor to Winnie, who scooted over a screech of an inch so Quinn could fit. Quinn settled into the ice-cold chair, and she and Winnie smiled at each other like they were enemies somehow. Now that Quinn sat among them, their musk wormed its way up her nose into her brain, a sneeze-inducing mix of several different brands of stuff, all woven together into a thick cloud. Mentholated perfume and vanilla and cigarettes and mothball and cream. It clung to Quinn's tongue. She held to the edges of her chair. Her throat clenched. Well, sighed Brenda. She smiled around at everyone. She was holding a clipboard. Let's get started. She leaned in. Welcome to the Edenville chapter of the Renfield County Historian Society. You all made it somewhere tonight, and that's a feat. But they all said this part together to each other. I'm glad you made it here. Great, said Brenda. Does anybody want to read a sin today? I will, said Winnie, clearly confident this was a very big thing she was volunteering to do. Great, Brenda handed her a laminated sheet. Winnie cleared her throat, glanced at Quinn, smiled at Greta, and began to read. Quinn tuned out and took stock of her surroundings. She recognized more than half the faces here, all the women who'd been working in town, the librarians, women she'd seen at the play, the frazzle-haired director, and Greta. Greta and everyone else watched Winnie read with stern reverence. Quinn thought she caught a whiff of music, some big choir of women singing out from the dark. She peered around over her shoulder, looked out into one of the many dim hallways. Some ghost song echoed out from it, far away and dim, but audible and even blooming a little, growing just the tiniest bit more triumphant and Christian-y. Winnie finished reading. And praise to the mind. Praise to the mind, said the circle. That caught her attention. Quinn turned back to the group and leaned over Winnie's shoulder, tried to see what was on the laminated sheet, what weird prayer she'd just missed. But Winnie was already handing it back to Brenda, who clipped it quickly to her clipboard. Okay, great. Brenda smiled up at everyone again. It's the first Wednesday, so we'll be reading from our first lesson today. Do we have any... Oh, shoot, I forgot. We wanted to vote on the date of the library book sale. Quinn sat silently as they voted on the date of the library book sale. Great, said Brenda, writing it down. The 24th it is. Okay, so who wants to read the first lesson today? We usually have a tradition that the new girl reads, but tonight we seem to have two new girls. Not that you're new per se, she said to Greta, but which one of you wants to read? You go ahead, said Greta, waving at Quinn and squirming impatiently in her seat. I'm just here for the ceremony. I don't need the readings. Ceremony, Quinn echoed. But Brenda was already shoving a book into her hand.
I'm going to stop there. So that is a bit of um, Edenville. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I I was like, I was waiting. (laughs) I'm like, like, oh, wait, what what does she, what does she read? But um, I I love, yeah. I mean, there are so many like sections you could have chosen, but like that section was like really, I love how mundane and ominous it feels um <laughs> at the same time and that's something that we talked about the la- i think in our last uh group conversation was like um suburban horror and um yeah yeah what is it about that kind of setting that um that attracts you or that 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 you felt like you wanted to explore um i, I think that um there's a shift. I don't know. I, I, I'm interested to see where the horror genre goes in the next couple of years, because I feel like I've been seeing more of suburban horror in general um, since the pandemic. People have been, um, you know, leaving cities and moving into new areas. And I think sort of discovering like, whoa, it's it's creepy around here. You know, um, I even have old friends who live in the Hudson Valley, but commute to the city and then once they started spending time around the Hudson Valley, noticed things that they never have, even though they've lived here for decades, like just little things like, oh, the flowers bloom like this. Did you know we have flowers in this part of the yard or things like that? Um, and so I think there's a, a push in general that way to notice suburbia more. But I also it's something that's or like a, a subgenre that I find sort of comforting because, as I said, in our spooky pod, um, Goosebumps was really my gateway into horror. And all of that is very suburban. I struggle to think of a Goosebumps that takes place in like a city or something. Um, I guess at one point they go to like Egypt but but, but mostly, <laughs> that must be for a specific purpose. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, they leave the city to go explore, you know, the ancient tomb mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, Cairo or wherever they were, but, but yeah. So I think, uh, you know, just hearkening back to like my roots in horror um, and my love for the genre, like suburban horror was just, you know, something that I found sort of comforting. And I think that, uh, it, it's just, there's so much to explore in the Hudson Valley. Like there are so many little out of the way towns um, and small hamlets and things that it feels like you could very easily accidentally slip into an Edenville type setting, you know? Um, and that was really how Renfield County started. We were driving home from like a wine trail somewhere in Connecticut, maybe many years ago. Um, and we drove down this one sort of foresty street where everyone was standing outside on their porches and just like staring out at the sunset. And I was like, what the fuck? What are they all looking at? <laughs> and it was maybe something mundane, like there were fireworks that night or something, mm-hmm. but it just brought to mind this folk horror. Like mm-hmm. they're all, you know, at sunset, the creature walks through the streets and everyone claps for it or something, or they all get killed. Um, and so that sort of thinking like all the weird little towns and, and rituals and things that happen in the Hudson Valley that we don't even know about that. That's always been very interesting to me. Mm. So speaking of goosebumps, congratulations, uh, RL Stein blurb yeah. your fucking fuck. Oh <laughs> it's yeah. like that. I I'll read it. I'll try to read it well, but, um, 
the comment that you will see on Sam's book is there are many camp- campus horror novels, but I think Edenville gets an A for ah! <laughs> which is the most Arl Stein like campy quote. Yeah. <laughs> Sam Rebelline should be awarded a master's degree in scary, a major new talent. Arl Stein, author of Goosebumps and Fear Street. <laughs> that was my dog Truman's very excited about it. I it's know. Like, yeah. It's fucking awesome. Uh, um, thank you. Yeah, that was a really crazy day. You know, it was all very secondhand. I emailed my editor who emailed um, his editor or publisher of something, you know, some vicarious connection was made there. And uh, I wrote him a little letter. And uh, I, I in the letter said, you know, I was a very scared kid. And I think Goosebumps helped me be braver. And, uh, you know, for example, like I was always afraid that the electricity in the walls would like jump out through the wallpaper and like shock me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so in his letter back to my editor, he was like, oh, thank you. Thank Sam for his letter. You know, he's right. He shouldn't touch the walls. And I was just like, ah, got me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we didn't like correspond directly or anything, but it was, he clearly like um, read my letter and read the book. And that was just very, very cool. I mean, I cried. My mom cried. Um, So, (laughs) yeah. I mean, yeah, you you said in Spooky Pod um, that your mom was kind of the one who introduced you to Arl Stein. She like brought yeah. home a bunch of goosebumps <laughs> from a garage sale, which I can totally visualize. <laughs> it's like you know, yeah. like a kid, like like Toy Story three, like you know, goes off to college and their mom sells all their goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I, I got rid of mine. Um, and it's such a regret of mine because now I'm like trying to rebuy them. Anytime I see one out in the wild, I'm like, Oh hell yeah. Because I, I just love the covers. The covers are so campy and fun. Um, and just the style of the book is so iconic, you know, the dripping, it's like, goopy 90s letters and so i wish i had held on to them because now i'm spending a lot of money trying to get them back (laughs) Um, so i I don't know and i I think like in general um because then i i read a lot of other things you know it wasn't until high school that i really started to discover lovecraft and and really get into um horror as a genre so between those like Arl Stein and everything else, there was a lot of other stuff that I read, like Lemony Snicket and mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of things. Um, so when I think about like the other people who have blurbed the book and said nice things about it, it's all very cool. Um, but they feel like people that I like know now, you know. And so Arl Stein is the one that I was like, oh, he's really a hero, though, you know. Um so it that has just been very very cool but but uh, like everyone has said such nice things about it like everyone who is blurb it has been really really kind and it's just funny to think like you know this is a dude that i knew when i was like seven you know that's such a crazy (laughs) um thing but yeah amazing mike you were you were nodding when sam was reading the like pra- praise to praise the mind um part and like Catholicism or like strict Catholicism was like part of your upbringing as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about like religion and like, you know, the role in, <laughs> in either of those? 
I mean, I, I I don't really have much to say. I mean, I laugh yeah. because you know, I mean, I, I mean, it comes with its own horrors, you know. Sure, <laughs> and it's it's very creepy. I mean, I grew up Catholic as well, but like, it's very like creepy. You like, I I I used to bring friends to mass, um, because I didn't want to go by myself. Like, I mean, I I was like, they were like gonna sleep over, and then like I had to go to mass, so they came with me. But like, they weren't. Catholic and so they're like why is everybody talking at the same time this is like freaky and 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 Sam you were saying that your parents at the time like in in your childhood were also really religious so yeah we we lived in suburban Ohio when I was uh you know six seven eight and uh, so we went to a mega church pretty regularly and I think that's funny that like you know you can have a room full of people who are like praise God and that's a religion but then you replace that with like praise the table and all of a sudden it's like some <laughs> bit of now it's horror you know it's like, <laughs> now it's something now it's sinister and so like that was definitely something i wanted to interrogate with Edenville: how easy it is to get wrapped up in a faith i think everybody in the book is just swallowed by some particular faith even cam has this faith in himself that's like egoistic like um you know, belief in himself and um, all the faculty, you know, just hook, line and sinker believe that this is the right thing to do and all this stuff. So, yeah. I, I really appreciate too that um, speaking of faith and and religion and organized or, or religion or not is that I, I really enjoyed the cosmology you have created for this work oh, cool. about you. how, how, you know, like there are, uh, I mean, you imagine this, Beast, this divine being, at least from the perspective of these interdimensional um, <laughs> like creatures, and then how each like our world is just like one, you know, one spot, like one call, like call, I guess you know, column in this, the, the or what, what am I saying? I'm, I'm getting my terminologies wrong, but one but, like yeah, disc in the disc, one disc, yeah, yeah. right? And, and and it's like that's such a cool way to imagine like the, the, the like existence itself and, and multiple planes of reality. So I, I mean, I, I enjoyed that aspect of your, um, of your, of your, of your novel of Edenville. It's just how you know the, the how you came up with this, this whole cosmological belief that then yeah. became the foundation for this story, the, this horror story you're telling. But I just had to ask, um, in terms of you know, I love me some good academic tales, and oh, sure, <laughs> I just yeah. have yeah, to ask being in academia awesome. myself. Just like you know, what what what? what uh, I mean, I I love your your look at the 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 faculty, <laughs> the English department. <laughs> but I I just wanted to ask, what made you like decide to set um, Edenville in in within this uh, the, the English department uh, slash creative writing department sure. of Edenville yeah. College? Well, it, it actually, um, and this is something that I feel sort of bad about the process of writing this book. Um, that the idea that I had first was um, this character who is like a sophomore in college and she um, is getting preyed upon by this professor who is stealing stories and like steals her idea. Um, and so I had that story and then I had Cam and Quinn and I was writing like, 
literary horror. It was going to, this was going to be my Midsommar where they're, it's all about the relationship. Um, but it was just sort of sad and they didn't have anything to do. And so I was like, well, what's the plot? And so I mushed those two stories together um, and then Cam and Quinn sort of took over the narrative and that other story about um, that character who ended up becoming Clarity sort of got pushed to the side. And so I feel bad that Clarity is not as much a part of the book because she was really a, a major force in um, like the original conception. Uh, but also a lot of the uh, I mean, I, I grew up a lot after Ohio, we moved to. Uh, Poughkeepsie and my parents both worked at Vassar College for years. And so I spent a lot of time around that higher education, you know, liberal arts um, sort of bubble um, and got to know it very well and got to know the things that I really loved about it. Like, you know, I love just being in schools and just being in that atmosphere of like learning and, um, you know, it's very social and there's a lot of positive stuff there, but there's a lot of ego at play as well. Um, and so a lot of Edenville College is based on Vassar College. And um, if you know Vassar, there's, um, you know, Matthew Vassar is the founder and he has this sort of classic big portrait where it's him and he's got like a cane tucked under his arm. And I was like, OK, what's the uh, Tim Burton version of that? Right. <laughs> um, and so that became Matthew Slitter and he's got the cane. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it was all just being in that environment for years and years and getting to know it really well. Um, which isn't to say anything about the English department at Vassar particularly. I had a very good experience as an English major at Vassar. <laughs> good, good to know. But yeah, just like caveat. Um, but it, it just that the ego of professorship and academia was the main thing that I wanted to look at. And I guess push back against maybe. So yeah. Yeah. There is, so yeah, so there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um in both of your books, the act of writing plays like this very significant role in the narrative. Like the protagonists mm. are like n not necessarily like I, it, it's funny because like in Edenville, I I think Cam is the protagonist, and then I'm not sure. <laughs> like, wait, is he? Like, is he just kind of He's he's a main character, but is he like along for the ride <laughs> kind yeah. of thing? And then Mike, you know, in your in your book, the writing is redemptive. Um, like the, the at least in in the in the end, <laughs> like writing writing is um like a, a redemptive act. And so, can you talk a little bit? You know, certainly people have. People have accused writers of being narcissists. <laughs> Weird. Uh, can you talk about the process of writing for you? Um, like what it does for you in you and for your characters? I, I'm going to start because I feel like you're going to have more positive stuff to say, Mike. Um, <laughs> but I that, it, that was something that was sort of hard to talk about with Edenville because the central bit... Like the catalyst is um, like the egotistical writer's wet dream, like the white male author who's like, my stuff is important. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do matter. And it's like, how far can you take that? So, yeah, I don't know. So that was that was the thing that I was really exploring with Cam and a lot of like my own negative sort of 
bits of my personality that I tried to sort of curb got into him as well. Like the times when I do think like, well, I'm better than this. I'm like, why don't you calm down, you know? And so Cam was a nice outlet for some of that like negativity that I feel in myself sometimes that like ego sort of bubbling up. And I'm like, just be, be chill. And Cam was a nice way to sort of outlet some of that. So that's my, that's my answer. And also um, anxiety, like about like, Sure. The expectations that of writers, like I think, you know, for me, that's what how I felt when I was like reading Cam. I'm like, I'm like, oh fuck. Like, you know, like the the pressure to publish and the pressure for that to be good. <laughs> like and and for it to lead to something else and like all of that. So Yeah. That- and the the narcissism to like give up and poo-poo it then to be like, well, I published one thing and it didn't change my life. So fuck everybody, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) like that's such a silly thing. And that that comes really early in the book. I'm like, oh, Sam, come on. (laughs) I'm like, like, you're the strange novel. (laughs) but yeah that is the anxiety right where you're like because you do want to like no matter what you're writing you want to produce change and i think that if you're stuck in your personality it can be easy to make yourself believe that you're not creating that change and and so you know I i don't think cam wants to like do anything for other people he just wants to be famous but that that anxiety definitely like pulls him under himself so, yeah. Well, what about you, Mike? Well, I guess I could speak to I, myself, but also the character of Mike in the narrative. Uh, I, I mean, yes, as you suspected, a lot of the things I will say will probably be, be positive, <laughs> but not entirely, because I like I, I mean, for like the role of writing in in, I guess, in my life, I guess, in this or also in my younger version, you know, my younger counterpart's life. I, I mean, when I set out to write this book it's it a lot of it started out as a way of sense making really i mm. uh, it's it's just a way of organizing the chaos of madness into something coherent and uh and and the thing is i didn't really intend to set out to write about the childhood episodes like the traumatic stuff i my idea coming into this work is to write this very clean story, clean as in you know very neatly organized of um, descending into madness and then the breaking point leading into psychiatric hospital suicide attempt, psychiatric hospitalization, and then the recovery that ensued after that. You know, you have this nice three act structure. The you know your your that has your exposition rising actions the new month and then but over the course of um, writing the story I also allowed myself to just explore these things that were nagging at me to be written uh, I I know that with I I'm not a fiction writer although I've dabbled into it but I know that the, with fiction writers sometimes it's the case that you write a story and then they they grow, they grow a life of their own, and then they have to. They just take the story, um, and you are the, the vessel for taking the story in the direction that these characters or events um, yearn to be taken. But I would say that with personal narratives, something similar can happen too. Uh, in that, again, I set out to write. I plotted to write this story of recovery and mental health decline and renewal, but these childhood 
episodes slowly began making their way into the story until they became a vital part of the story. But it's also a vital part of not just the story that the readers are going to have in their hands, but for me as well. It's it's a way of reconciling childhood and young adulthood. So um, in some ways, the story kind of is reflective of psychotherapy in that you you come into psychotherapy expecting something that will some kind of revelations or or interventions that will somehow alleviate whatever problems are ailing you and brought you into therapy in the first place. But then these discoveries surface um, that have the, that beg somehow to be woven into the narrative. So um, your personal narrative, but yeah, so um, so there's that. But I think for me, uh, other redemptive qualities of writing were just being able to transform how I feel about some things. Like even when I read some of the paranoid or obsessive thoughts that Mike has had, like if I touch a girl after masturbating, I, I she'd become pregnant. <laughs> you know, that, that was a line somewhere there. And I read about something like that and I still feel embarrassed. Like from pre- the point of view of present day Mike Alvarez, that's like, yeah, I feel embarrassed, but they no longer elicit shame. And in some ways, that's what writing has done. It, it, it doesn't, I think it would be too optimistic to say that it made the shame go away. It didn't, but what it did do for some of those more intense feelings like shame uh, is to make them more pliable so that they are, you know, my, my shame has dissolved into embarrassment. Now, whenever I read things like that, I'm still embarrassed for myself and I'm embarrassed for the character who's going through these very... Um, you know, uncomfortable thoughts that he can't really disclose to anyone because of how others might perceive him to be. But yeah, so that's another thing. Uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, in some ways, like in what ways is writing redemptive in a, in a nutshell, allowing feelings um, that we thought were not malleable to be pliable and also a way of sense-making and even discovering connections between events of our lives that on the surface seem isolated and have nothing to do with one another. You you do talk in your reflection about, um, I think it's writing as a way for for healing, uh, the Louise DeSalvo book, Mm -hmm. um, where it's not just like, like you were saying, Sam, you know, like about not being ready to like, we're wanting to write straight memoir um that's what you chose at the like at goddard like just writing it is can be re-traumatizing like you have to like do it in a certain way (laughs) like you know kind of put it outside of yourself like a lot of self-care like uh you know I, i actually really resonated with you, Mike, talking about your writing schedule and just like the container in which mm. you wrote this book, um, like just from the this hour to this hour and then done, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I'm page like, and I'm then like, oh, yeah, forget it. That yeah. feels really pl- nice. <laughs> I, then I play video games. I, yeah. I, I I remember that because I I was finishing. Um, that was that was 2013 when I first finished the narrative and. I was playing The Last of Us 
on oh, the PlayStation 3. <laughs> yeah, so that's what oh I was looking gosh. for. So like after 3 p.m., I'm playing The Last of Us. So I, I had like a bunch of video games lined up that I was going to play until like 3 to 6, and then I'll eat, and then I'll play until 9, and then I'll go to bed. So The Last of Us was one of them. And yeah, so it's, and then I, I had my I had my zombie fixation um, <laughs> for, so yeah, so that's what happened. I, 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 it, the funny thing is when I wrote my MFA process paper, we all had to do this after we've written our creative manuscripts, we had to do a process paper of some kind. Where we we where we reflect on narrative choices we make. I did talk about that, but I said maybe not. I I I, I don't need to mention that I shot zombies in in this in this in this academic book after three p.m. <laughs> but yes, but it goes to the basically that yeah, setting like setting a predetermined time for the writing about difficult subjects and have that serve as a container so it doesn't contaminate the rest of your life, at least not in any adverse way. Of course, it's going to spill over in some way. Like I would think about the things I'm writing even while I'm taking a shower, but but it's not in a, you know, some of its more deleterious um, potential can be contained in that way. Mm. I think video games are... Um such an important part of my writing process um, because they hit a happy medium for me where you're engaging in a story and so you're you're reading something technically because especially in games like the last of us you're um, being told a story in such a specific way where you're finding like old notes and journal entries and things and so you are reading a story Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but there's a lot of in-between space where you're like just walking to the next fight or like crafting something where you get to sort of ruminate and like let the day digest in, in your head, you know, and um, and then you get some aggression out. You get to punch or shoot or stab oh. the fuck out of, you know, any number of <laughs> enemies. So it's Infected. just a nice, yeah, cannibals, and, you know, whatever. Um, so it's just such a nice, happy medium for me between like getting some of those uh, feelings out and thinking about stories and just letting the day process, you know. Uh, I have to note that I, I know this Witcher 3 was referenced in Edenville. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was, I really wanted it to be um, God of War originally because okay. I feel like that is such a uh, male thing to like, boy, you know, to do that over and over. Um, but the timeline didn't work out. It was like, this is technically 2016, so mm. the game isn't out yet, whatever. <laughs> but yeah. wait, tell me, tell me, because I don't know this what Switcher Three is. The well, Witcher Three. Um, oh, Witcher that, Three. <laughs> yeah, the Witcher Three. Yeah, okay. um, the show's coming out now with Henry Cavill, although mm-hmm. he just left the show, um, I think. And um, so the game um, was the games are great, but initially I'd wanted it to be God of War, which is like. You know, I think falls into the same category of The Last of Us, um, which is like, you know, strong male protagonist takes care of like younger, helpless being, um, you know, whether it's a daughter figure or a son figure or whatever. There's something about that, like particular video game trope that I feel like is sort of a like male fantasy where you're like, I'm powerful and I can take care of someone else. But I, I also shamelessly love a lot of games that fall under that umbrella, like The Last of Us. Um, so whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, I say that because I like that's that's a game that I think Cam would have really gravitated towards. 
um, that uh, God of War, like, um, I will take care of my son, you know, mm. um, whatever narrative. But it's funny because Cam can't do that. I <laughs> can't take care of anyone or doesn't see anymore. <laughs> no, he really gets his shit rocked in the third act. Like, like yeah. gets his brain sucked into a trunk, gets backhanded. Like, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, it's really. Like just- hopeless helpless hopeless <laughs> yeah like quinn you know gets cut up beat up crawls her way out of yeah. a like tunnel and he's like oh i had a rough day too <laughs> <laughs> um so it just you know she just escaped it's... like a horde of grandmothers not can, nothing yeah. can top that <laughs> exactly spider grandmothers yeah and he's like i sort of helped kill a guy you know um <laughs> <laughs> whatever it's not the same <laughs> well it's so i was gonna you know you were talking about him being beat up and um and we have referenced a couple of like body instances um the last time what no in sam's first interview we talked you were talking about a movie that you didn't name um because you didn't Ooh. like it like <gasps> oh no and it was it was a movie that you had seen with a friend at like over zoom because that's where we were at the time. And in it, the director chose to cut away from some, like, like a guy is being like thrown down the hill or something. Sure. 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 Yeah. And then then the director chose to cut away before you see any like blood or anything. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) 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 This is a movie. (laughs) <laughs> this is yeah that was the remake of wrong turn um and the dude is about to get he's like pinned against a tree and there's a log rolling down the hill oh, yeah. and it's about to smush him and then they cut away and i was like yeah. all right the only reason i'm here is to see grizzly deaths like yeah. this is not gonna that be... was what you signed up for <laughs> yeah this isn't the godfather or anything yeah. like <laughs> you know um, this isn't high literature film um but uh, <laughs> um, yeah and we're not in like pre like in co- Hayes Code, you know, era. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> like, show um, us the fucking blood. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but on that note, we talked about, like, we've talked about, um, like, Saw and, like, different body horror. That was something that, like, as a group, we talked about last time. And there are definitely elements of body horror in both of your books um that felt like super visceral to me and like mm-hmm. i was telling sam before we started recording um that i try <laughs> i like went to sleep after reading the description of the philosopher high turning into all the i, I mean i it's like i couldn't the the description was so good and vivid that I couldn't picture it. I don't know how. Like I could only hold on to certain I like I'm not an artist. Like and I could only hold on to certain aspects of it. Like, but I was I had a nightmare about worms that night and I was like, the worms are gonna get me, you know. So that's cool. <laughs> Sam thought it, it was cool. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, that's exciting. Um, um but that and then Mike, you you talked about, you know, the scene in the shower um, with the self-mutilation and that you you had considered cutting away from that in Uh, like at one point um, and like not actually going into it. But then you chose to do so. So can you both talk to me a little bit about like 
the choices of body horror in in your book. Wow. This is maybe one of the most well-framed questions I've ever heard you ask. This is, you're tying together so many things. This fascinating question. I highlighted that one because I was pretty excited about it. <laughs> about you, Mike? Uh, I, I, in terms of writing it, well, with regards to that self-mutilation scene, I, I did... I, I I mean, if I if I had done that, if I had quote unquote cut away, I would have committed the atrocity that was done in Wrong Turn, and uh, you know, and I, I and I I I think it would have just been I I I I would have done it out of too much concern for the reader, I guess. Uh, and but I think sometimes we really just have to write the story that we want to tell. And I mean, of course, there's there are ways to be responsible about that, and uh, but but there are times where that, that was just something I couldn't compromise. Like I had to include that, especially in retrospect. Even the again making thirty cuts is it's it's significant. And had that particular scene not been included, or had I cut away when Mike remove the sheath off of the exacto knife it would have been a missed opportunity to to explore the deeper symbolic connections between the chapters the childhood interludes and so forth um but the, in terms of body horror so there was the self-mutilation but i think the ones that were especially more difficult to write were those involving childhood scenes like where you know where where Mike suffers various kinds of punishments. One aimed at his um, genitalia. Uh, you know, I was going to say the, that's the first one that comes to mind as far as body horror in those um, inter interstitials interludes. The right? interludes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was its body horror right there. I mean, the 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 piece that I read is a kind of body horror too, uh, with the the thirty whippings that was aborted midway. And there were others. I, I, and I, another challenge, too, was choosing representative examples, because I, I, I think if I, I, I it's there were just too many to include, for one thing. But at the same time, I, I had to include variety uh, for, for audience members to give them an idea that these are the kinds of things that have happened. But these are not necessarily exhaustive of all the things that have happened to Mike when he was a child. But another form of body horror in the work are the delusions themselves. Um, so like a, a, a bus spontaneously combusting because uh, when I was younger, well, well, when, you know, Mike would experience these intrusive thoughts very vividly. So these were not things that he conjured volitionally, but just seemed to come out of nowhere. Like... The very idea that if he didn't knock on wood when the some kind of wood when the the digits on the, the digital alarm the alarm clock were the same numbers that some grave misfortune will befall his loved ones like his mother getting stabbed to death in a dark alley so that that, that itself is a body horror so there are many body horrors here that have happened to the character but also. In his imagining, so I, in some ways there are, I guess, multiple levels of body horror. But uh, yeah, I, I think I, I can't even remember what your question was. <laughs> I think I was, I was like curious about your choice in using it, which you you talked about, but like also how it works on you. Like how does the how does body horror work on you when you are uh, reading it or writing it? 
Yeah, I, I think there there is always going to be a visceral reaction whenever I read it. Like even the when I read the piece that I just did for this cat podcast, I I did get a sense of um, you know, uh a tingling sensation in my stomach. Uh I guess we could we would call it butterflies <laughs> in our in my stomach, but uh but with that clothespin incident uh, in in one of the interludes, that that one is still very difficult to read. I actually read that at a conference very recently, and it, it was just reading it was difficult, but also seeing how audience members would react was also difficult. Uh, so they're always going to be there. It, it will. It, I think it will not cease to provoke these reactions in me, but as I was saying earlier, it does help to write about them and making them less of points of shame for me. But uh, mm. speaking of body horror, with, with regards to Edenville, for me, <laughs> the, the really skin-crawling moments were involved um, the licking the the, 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 oh, the, the yeah. ethereal ooze coming out of eyeballs. <laughs> that was like, whoa! <laughs> L- licking eyeballs? There. This is TMI. It's not TMI, but like there was a guy like that I knew in high school that was like talking about licking someone's eyeballs. I'm like, that's disgusting. Like, and like that just made my tent like like made me feel tense and squirmy. And um, yeah, so reading about the ether coming out and um and drinking of it, I'm like, oh. <laughs> Vomitous. Yeah, I think um, there was. I don't remember what line it was, but I think there was a line somewhere in there where my editor commented, "Just no," <laughs> and I was like, "Stat," um, you know. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I, I included it because I wanted a little bit of um, something for everybody. You know, this is it's a um, big publisher, and so it has a it's. I guess intended for a more mainstream audience, but I wanted to be sure that all of my horror friends who read so much in the genre and, um, uh, you know, watch so many movies in the horror genre, like have a lot of exposure to horror that they had something that would really freak them out and grab them. So I wanted, and I felt like I needed one scene in there, at least that was really like, Oh, this is, this is the scene. If you're going to have like one really terrible thing, this is going to be the thing that people point to as like, Oh yeah. Um, which it really has been so far, which is great. That and the, um, uh, the first transformation scene when they're in the basement, um, that I read part of earlier, but yeah, so those, that was sort of my reasoning that I wanted there to be something for the more hardcore horror fans. Um, and, uh, you know, some, some big set piece, which in general is like how I really thought of this book and how I'm thinking of, um, I'm working on the second novel now, like every scene needs to have some big set piece or or bit that makes it uniquely interesting in and of itself. Like it doesn't, like it moves the plot forward in this way. Um, it gives us this emotional beat for this character, but on top of that, what's the like, uh, brain candy, you know, what's the thing that you can look at where you're like, oh, man, um, that's sort of on top of that. Um, so, yeah, th- those are the reasons that I included that scene. Um, I also just think it's so um, it's so visceral for Quinn, knowing that, like, she's stuck in this space watching this happen. And 
I don't know. It's, it's always just good to know what's about to happen to you. You know, like if you have a character in a terrible situation, like they're kneeling over a trough, it, I think it's good to like, we get the sense that they're going to have their throat slit into the trough, but it's good to have one other extra character there who can show us exactly how terrible it's going to be, you know? Um, so, <laughs> so Greta uh, really, really was that in that scene. So yeah, I don't know. A, a more simple answer than than yours, Mike, about like not shying away, but <laughs> but leaning in. Yeah. So what do, what does body horror do for you? I mean, Saw was a huge like thing for you. Um, so so when you watch it, read it, and write it, like wh- like what does it do for you? That's a good question. I, I think uh, it helps me feel like I'm in my body more, and um, this has been um, like a weird sort of therapy memoir thing that I've been thinking about for myself recently where I realized like when I um, eat a lot, uh, cause that my one big vice is food. I tear through a bag of Doritos, like nobody's business. <laughs> um, but I realized recently that it's not so much entirely about eating the food as it is about using that to ground myself in my body. That it's the, like after the chips, when I feel like shit, and being able to like take care of myself after that, that is also a, a draw and a coping mechanism to like really bring yourself in your body. And so I think body horror does the same kind of thing where it's a weird, horrific way to really ground you and make you aware of your body. Cause that's something that I struggle with in general, like being in my body and not in my head or in my anxieties or whatever, uh, but just being present. And so I think body horror, like you said, Mike, like gives you the tingles, makes you like, okay, I still have all my fingers. Right. Um, <laughs> or like, I, I don't, I don't have to lick anybody's eye socket today. So it's just a nice way of like, um, helping myself feel grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Like I embodied writing is something that I have tried to practice. I'm not always great at it, but like, I, I tend to be like super analytical, but I have seen the like results of people who have like written embodied writing and like in poetry or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, I, I I feel you. <laughs> like, I can feel the thing that you are expressing, you know, like like I feel it in my body. And so I was talking to Curtis, my husband, um, last night about 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 this question, actually, about body horror, because I was like, you know, I want to talk about this. <laughs> like, we talked about it a lot, just theoretically and like, you know, in movies. But I was like, they're both using it in their books. <laughs> so, and I was like, I was also thinking about like, uh, Sam, we had talked about in your in your episode, what what really scares you like or or what scares a person like um and for you, you were talking about medical horror. Um, oh, sure. I, See, it all connects. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, that is something that's happening in your book, right? Like, like a kind of like they, they're, they've created, I mean, it's um, medieval medical. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the, the saw <laughs> trap got in there. It's, it's yeah. such a weird, um, uh, yeah, so that that was my my saw trap, the the giant machine that they have in the basement that they call the bleeder. 
uh, I, I tried hard to like describe it as a device that you would see in a saw flick, like it's rusted and it clanks and yeah. Yeah. It definitely feels like, like a medieval torture device for sure. You know, awesome. like, and I'm like, I, I, I could see it like this, like, perverted carousel. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, like, but, um, I was trying to think of what scares me um, when I was talking to Curtis, because I was just like, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre didn't scare me that much. And Rosemary's Baby, I watched fairly recently again. And like, that scares me, but like more on like a like, uh, you know, kind of like not like like gut, like scare gross, you know, but like um, I don't remember the. I mean, I can guess the story, but I don't really remember much of the exorcism of um, Emily Rose, but I saw that movie in the theaters and like the way her body twists, like I still remember, like I don't, I remember nothing else about that movie, but I remember that the way her body was like twisted and her neck is like whatever. And I think that's like something that is happening in hereditary and like, when I walked in to the to like and Curtis was watching it like because that's I've only seen uh, like <laughs> like the last half of it or last hour or whatever. <laughs> Amanda did air quotes for everybody. At home. She's <laughs> quote unquote seen her. Uh, yeah, because I, was, I walked in. Tony Collette, I think, is like on the ceiling and like mm-hmm. there's, there's like some sort uh, of like, string yeah. up neck shit. And I was just like. No, (laughs) and I didn't leave the room, but I just like looked down and like sometimes I would like look up and then I would look down. But like, so, yeah, so I so that is that would be a body horror. this like manipulation, like um, a broken, like broken neck, but like. Like, like this person shouldn't still be moving. Yeah. Yeah. And the sound and the like feel of it, like the Foley work of those, Mm -hmm. like the one of the most like squeam inducing bit of body horror things that I've ever seen is in Black Swan when she's picking at her fingernail or like her cuticles and then rips it up her finger. I just like, I've only seen that once when it came out in like 2009, but to this day, like, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that is just the worst. I think worse than a lot of saw traps for me, honestly, because wow. I I don't have a con because I, and that's the thing maybe that I don't have a context for that. If it's mm-hmm. something that you have a context for, it's I think like, it but I've had a hangnail. <laughs> yeah, and I've torn you know? some of them too far, and it messes yeah. up my whole week. You know, so I like, <laughs> can't imagine every time I stick my hand in my pocket, then I'm like, oh god. Um, <laughs> You know, um, but the same thing with the 30 cuts that I like, I have a context for that. I've, I've, you know, cut myself on things. I haven't cut myself, but I like, you know, I think we all have a context for like a paper cut or whatever it might be. And so the idea of like, I am driven to do 30 of these and to watch you do it or to watch Mike do it gives us such a visceral, like we have context for that. And it's such a visceral thing to see it and to know that it's about to happen. It's just such a like, you know, you get that tightening. Like I, that's how body horror makes me feel. Or I just like every piece of myself, I want to bend into myself as tight as I'm like, don't touch any part of me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, we're not, the thing is like, yeah, we're not really, you know, we go through our lives and we're not really, we take for granted or are not really aware of our bodies or the fact that we are embodied creatures until either something, whether it's pain or discomfort or illness, makes us cognizant of our bodies or through fictional media, encounter these representations of these um Again, body horror, like uh, again the the licking of the, <laughs> the 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 ethereal ooze coming out of someone's eyes, or I even I guess for me speaking, we were talking we're talking about like what scares us. For me, it's actually heights. So mm-hmm. I'm very afraid of heights, and, and and I guess one recent piece of media that really made me very cognizant of my body was squid game because uh for you know the like uh, the 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 part where like the games in squid game they were they were they, they, they were quite you know they were bothersome to watch but i but what really made it very viscerally bothersome for me was when they had the tug of war uh, several stories <laughs> high. I'm like, well, this, this yeah. just took the, the show to a new level for me. <laughs> that, that part. The others, yes, they were horrible, but but when we when you got to the the tug of war and losers fall to their doom, that that was it. Yeah. Because you don't watch Man on Wire. <laughs> I, I have oh. seen it actually. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um like, do you see the there's a new ish movie called the fall or fall where it's like two gals on a giant radio tower that's like two thousand feet into the air well, okay I don't know if i want to watch this i haven't but i don't know if i want to <laughs> yeah check it out fall. i mean these are not quite body horror but you know it does yeah. made made it make it make these kinds of scenes make me very much aware of my own embodiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever makes you want to like uh, hold your arms against your chest. Right. Whatever that yeah. feeling is. of like, Oh no. Um, yeah. I, I think like Mike, you were saying that body horror or horror like, body horror. Uh, like we're not aware of our own bodies until like something happens like illness or whatever. And likewise, I feel like we're not aware of our capacity for grief <laughs> and loss um, until, until we lose something, you know, like some, something meaningful, almost someone meaningful. And so Grief and loss, like to me, feel like very embodied emotions, so to speak. Um, like that's that's where we experience grief. Like it's you don't ex- like I experience grief through my tears. I don't experience the just like analyzing something, right? Um, and so grief and loss play significant roles also in your books um like you know sam with quinn like i and i'm excited to read the second novel like i i am assuming it's a continuation of this story um it'll yeah it'll be different characters in the same world um, okay but i i do um i I really wanted quinn and clarity to drive off into nothingness like they Mm -hmm. deserve to um Mm -hmm. but i that that will not be true uh, they'll come back for something else I, right. I, and i feel so bad i like it's so rare that i feel bad 
like hurting characters <laughs> because I love <laughs> that reader reaction of like, oh no. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. fuck you. And they got eviscerated. <laughs> it just feels like it's that same, you know, when you pop out around a corner and go boo, it's just such a satisfying, like, hee hee. Um, yeah. So I feel bad that I have another story idea for Quinn and Clarity, but they yeah. they have another adventure to go on for sure. But but anyway, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like Quinn, you know, she's the reluctant throughout this whole thing, but I think she is very driven by like the loss of Celeste. Um, and that's like kind of the only it's not because of Cam that she stays, really. Like it kind maybe, but like because she's invested, but like I think in her heart, it's because of Celeste. Like it, that's how it feels. Um, and so, um, for, for both of you, you know, like how, like we've, we've talked about, um, horror as a safe container to cope with like trauma and anxiety. So how do you think your books might work on you, the reader of your books, um, to contain trauma, grief, anxiety? Well, I guess I, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this question by talking about the kinds of things that are moments of grief and loss in the story and in how that might resonate with readers. So, I, I mean, Mike, the story of Mike touches upon a number of grief, uh, not just loss related to death, but non-death losses as well, uh, like loss of opportunities, loss of developmental milestones. So he got he didn't really get to experience the college life he thought he was going to have when he first arrived at uh, on campus for his orientation weekend and he he didn't get to have that really and he it was something he he looked forward to things like you know falling in love having like a lover or multiple lovers and <laughs> and um even just getting to have the kind of fun that college students his age would have so there are definitely those are those are definitely moments that he grieves and also one's wholeness of self uh with the kinds of um fragmented experience that he had as he was going through debilitating anxiety and paranoia and suicidality and i think writing about these moments in Mike's life, whether or not a person has, the reader, has gone through so-called mental illness, suicidality, traumatic experiences that lead to the loss of enjoyment of childhood, and and other such losses, I, I think whether or not the reader shares the loss, this, the, the concrete losses that Mike experienced, I, I, I think in readers can at least appreciate or perhaps even relate to the very feeling of what it is like to lose something and like again whether it's whatever it is and it it doesn't have to be someone it could be someone but it could be years of one's life or things that you take for granted like sanity or or even or, or let's just even say wholeness what is it like to lose parts of yourself that such that you no longer feel whole. And I think that's something that readers can relate to, whether or not they've been diagnosed with mental illness, whether or not they've attempted to end their lives, whether or not they have 
been institutionalized in the adult unit of a psychiatric hospital. I think that is a uh, something that can resonate with readers. And again, with, with all the ethnography, uh, I speak about all the ethnography as linking psyche and society, self and culture, but all the ethnography is also something that links self with other, specifically writer and reader. And it is my hope that at least whatever background my reader has, wherever in life they're coming from, that they can appreciate or relate to and find validation in losing one's wholeness of self, but also the possibility for your life continuing in spite of that loss and still being able to find different kinds of wholeness. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how that answer, if that answers your question, but that's, you know, what comes to mind. Seems like a great answer to me. I think with Edenville, you know, Renfield County um, is a literal depression on the face of the earth. And um, it uh, began when I, when I first started writing in this world, um, the stories that I was writing were these like more, um, these were ideas and issues that I was wrestling with and how can I write about them through a symbolic horror lens? Um, Cause I was really struggling when I started writing this world and, and really in a depressed spot. And so Renfield County became an outlet for a lot of those feelings. And so in this book, when Quinn goes into the county, she's entering this sort of um, limbo, depressive state for herself. You know, she's at a point in her life where she feels like she needs to um, exert some agency in one direction or the other, right? She has this sort of um, stagnant job that she enjoys enough that she could stay there forever. Um, and has sort of given up on her dream of acting and um, is in a weird spot with Cam because she doesn't really like Cam anymore. Um, I think that when oftentimes when you, and a relationship ends, the love is still there and will remain there maybe forever. But you, one or both parties don't like each other anymore. And so I think that that's her struggle where she really loves Cam, but he's, she's starting to see that he's such an asshole. But if she breaks up with him, then she's proving her mom right. Who And she doesn't like her mom either. So she's in this weird, like, mid-20s. You know, she's 26. Uh, and she's just in a weird spot where she's like, I got to start making some moves one way or the other. And so when she enters Edenville, she enters this atmosphere where she's sort of forced to make moves and make decisions and be alert. And at the end, uh, when she leaves sort of without even glancing at it or like giving it a, a second thought, she runs over um, the thing that has traumatized and depressed her in the first place. And I think, you know, she's gone through such an experience and, um, done such a tremendous job of surviving and taking care of herself and like even sort of pulling Celeste out of that. Like the girl that she leaves with clarity looks like Celeste um, a little bit. And um, in general is just someone in need of saving that Quinn can 
um, pull out of there, even if she can't save Celeste. Um, and so for me, the story ends on a very empowering, uplifting note that like you can still, um, you know, run over your old ghouls. Like they're nothing more than a speed bump. You know, you can enter and leave that space. And I think even the way you put this in unraveling is great that it's, there's no outcome, but it's a process that you're still driving forward. Um, you know, the book ends with Quinn driving away. Um, and that's why I like started thinking so much about, um, the next story for Quinn. Cause I thought, well, okay, where does she arrive then? Because if we see her arrive somewhere at the end of the book, I think we get that sort of pat um, scene of like, okay, well now things are better. But you also talk about an unraveling, like how do we avoid, how do we um, give the readers some sense of closure and of um, like uplifting positivity without making it seem too saccharine or too complete? right? That there's still a process to go through. And so I started to think about where Quinn goes. Like when they drive out of Edenville, where do they get food? Like where do they arrive, you know? Um, And what happens then? And what are the other trials and tribulations that they have to fight through together in order to continue to survive? Because even though you've left this one depressive state, it doesn't mean that you're cured or, you know, that you have that, um, outcome is that it's like process versus outcome right and so yeah i think it continues to be a process for her but this is very much about the emotional journey that she goes through in one step of this process you know like she could end up dating four or five more people who are as narcissistic and codependent as cam before the lesson finally sinks in you know um i should i deserve better i deserve more whatever yeah, that 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 to me, it's it's an empowering ending in that she gets to leave, and there's also a force of good that's still guiding her. You know, um, even though there's a lot of sinister forces at work in Edenville, I also try to make an effort to say, like, well, if bad magic exists, good magic must as well, and so there's a bit of magic in her, like her dad's lighter and um, the song that comes on the radio at the end, like she does feel that she's taken care of or watched over in some regard, even if she's in the bowels of hell. Right. And I think, you know, and my most like, um, and my lowest points in life, I think those are when you pay attention the most because you're really trying to see like, okay, well, what's maybe the way out of this or what can I pay attention to? And what are the, the positive patterns, you know? So she really starts to do that at the end and make connections between the song on the radio and her father and, escaping this relationship and things like that. So yeah, it, to me, it just meant to be like, you leave the book feeling like, Oh, awesome. You know, instead of sad, <laughs> which, you know, it, it, like it, it's so easy to leave a horror narrative with like, Oh my God, I just want to go to bed, you know, but I, I wanted Edenville to leave on like an up note. And so that was really what I was working towards. Yeah. I, I like what you said. Well, there's some things that I like, like when you said running over old ghouls. That's such an excellent line. <laughs> I feel like that could be like the 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 the, the like the, the title of like an, another article again, where you know <laughs> we're coming up with awesome things here. But yeah. uh, I, I but something but also like having an ending that is uplifting without being too saccharine. And I I I think too going back to our discussion of you know 
horror service serving as a comfort especially for traumatized individuals i think if a if a horror movie were to have an ending that is too saccharine I, in some ways that would be a betrayal of the traumatized individual's subjective reality sure because yeah. you know as we we were you know we've talked about how recovery is not really an outcome that's just achieved and once you have achieved it you are purged of all vestiges of past suffering that it isn't quite like that and traumatized individuals can attest to to it not being quite like that it is a process a process that is enduring and quite possibly lifelong but so for for a horror movie to end in a very saccharine note can again can be a in some ways can be a betrayal yeah (laughs) i I would think think. yeah i think the babadook is such a great like metaphor for grief then because they they never um have you seen it or am i about to spoil it for you I have seen it. Okay, I have great. not, but you've already spoiled it <laughs> in previous podcasts. Um, so it's all good. Well, they so they never oust the the entity, right? Um, but instead, sort of banish it to a corner of the room and feed it worms. And they don't even feed it like normal food. It eats like dirt and and squirmy things. And I think that's such a beautiful symbol for. Um, like whatever negativity afflicts you, depression, anxiety, these spirals of like panicky um, thoughts, whatever it might be, you could never fully get it out of the house. The best you can do is shove it into a corner and feed it worms and pay attention to it and make sure that it doesn't like break out again because of that, you know, like, I'll be fine and fine and fine. And then all of a sudden I realize, like halfway through the bag of Doritos that my ghost has broken out again. <laughs> like, and, and I think that's how Renfield County works too, that it's like, you're okay. You're okay. You're okay. And then you look around and you're like, Oh, I'm super not okay. Actually. I feel like I interrupted you, but that's my, my thoughts about the Babadook, which is obviously what we've been talking about this whole time. <laughs> Is a Babadook. I was actually going to bring up the Babadook, at least as you've described it, because um, that is something that we had talked about in previous podcasts and as a metaphor for grief and like how it doesn't go away. And it doesn't like, you know, having experienced grief as as many of us have and as I know, as all of us have, it just changes and you just put it somewhere (laughs) and don't let it overtake your whole life. Grief, grief is grief, trauma, anxiety, like none of those really disappear just because you want them to. You can't slay those dragons completely. (laughs) And so you just kind of let them go. But so on that note, we were talking about the Babadook and Sam, you had talked about wanting to write scenes for little old lady actors um, that would be super fun. And Mike, in the discussion questions at the end of your book, you ask people to dreamcast or like to cast the movie of Mike's story. So um, for both of you, let's dreamcast your book. Um, Who do you think you would want and who does the other think would would play? A good, a good Mike or a good Quinn or whatever. Oh my gosh! Well, I who would play a good Mike? Because I I remember that discussion question, and I was like, that's such a good question, and I don't have an answer. I think, but do you? How do you picture this story, Mike? 
I I mean I I don't I, the, I mean I should have been prepared for this question because it was one of the discussion questions in <laughs> my book. Because you started it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I I don't have an answer either for Edenville. I'm trying to think. I'm racking my mind and I'm I'm struggling to come up with with particular people. But I will I will say that I will put, let me provide context. The reason why that discussion question made it into the book is because at one of my readings that happened a few years ago. I was asked that question and I didn't know how to answer it. And so I thought, well, if I can't come up with an answer, why don't I make my students come up with an answer? Should I ever use this book in one of my classes? And until now, I still don't have an answer. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's it's challenging because you have to find someone young and... Mm you know, Filipino. And hopefully. so, yeah, hopefully Filipino, <laughs> at, at least Asian. <laughs> you know, let's, let's try. But yeah. So like there haven't been a, a ton of, you know, and we can talk about this, like movies in general. Oh my gosh, there, yeah, this is a whole been, other podcast yeah, of like, yeah. Of like representation and there haven't been enough young Filipino, like male or female actors. Actually, yeah, I mean, like, I can only pick, like, I only know women, young women, um, young Filipino women. So I don't, yeah, I don't have, I don't have a good answer yet <laughs> either. But, but like a type, like, do you have, um, even if they're not Filipino, like, you know, like, they just like the mood, the mood of the person? Well, I, I, I have to be, be careful not to. I have to think back to my younger self because, you know, like the present day Mike Alvarez is kind of jaded. So it has to be someone bursting with enthusiasm about, you know, I mean, someone who all, all obviously carries trauma, but is still, you know, not quite whose optimism, which is not to say that my optimism about life has been eroded. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to get at. But, but someone who is, you know, at uh, who has, you know, a zest for life that hasn't quite been. I I I refuse to. Use, I, I'm trying to not use the word eroded because, but but that's the best I can come up with. I, I yeah, in terms of a type, someone who just exudes that, like uh, optimism, and oh, obviously someone nerdy like me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I guess those are those are my those are very minimum qualifications. So, but that's that's what I've got. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's great. I I don't have a much better answer for Eaton Bell. I do. Um, when I first started writing the character of Benny McCall, I was watching Fargo season two, um, and the there's a guy who plays like a suave hitman in that, um, Bokeem Woodbine is um this black actor who's been in a couple things that i think is just brilliant and he has this like sort of suave but sinister bond villain vibe to him and so i just wrote um you know like i was saying earlier what would be a fun role to play for a you know a bad guy and like i used to be a theater nerd and my favorite roles were always the bad guys you know so I was like, oh, he'd be really good in this. And so I that was my very simple answer. It's just that this specific guy. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. But I also think it would be so fun to um, there must be a one handed Korean lady who wants to act. But find her and cast her with like 
who is the unknown who can be Sydney Kim, you know, uh, other than that. I, I love that. So you mentioned Beetlejuice. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, so, you know, I think Quint, like um, Lydia or, you know, Winona Ryder, young Winona Ryder. Oh, she'd like be great. Quinn, yeah. But, you know, now, I mean, there there will be people like, I mean, I guess <laughs> who is it? Oh, who's the one who plays Wednesday? She's playing the oh, like, Jenna Ortega. Daughter. Yeah, she's She'd playing the great. daughter. Yeah, of you know, aren't they doing a Beetlejuice? Oh, um, yeah, they're doing. I haven't, I haven't paid attention to any of the news about Beetlejuice too. I think but. she's gonna be the daughter of Winona oh, Ryder's character. So, yeah, I'll say Jenna Ortega. <laughs> oh, fun too. Yeah, uh, I was thinking too of uh, Margaret Qualley because she's oh, sure. yeah. like very Quinn is very skinny and angular and like yeah pointed like she has yeah. a laser focus you know and i think margaret Qualley could pull that off really well yeah. um but uh definitely but yeah i mean i think you know i'm trying to think of like filipino like older men for mike's dad um that but like i'm coming up short <laughs> like on on choices just because I haven't watched enough like Filipino movies. There, there's, I mean, there is a, like a very like big Filipino movie industry, but I don't, I'm not as familiar with it. <laughs> so I'm not plugged into that either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if anyone has ideas, please like, just let us know and we'll, and we'll pass the names along. So Mike can decide if those were. <laughs> it must be funny too because i like you know for me these are sort of floaty like dream people like i imagine their vague shapes but their faces are sort of non-specific but for you you like know exactly what all of these people look like right so i i, I don't know if that makes imagining the cast harder or easier probably harder actually i as i think about it i yeah it would probably be harder. I think. I mean, I, th- I. Yeah, because I'm looking at Mike right now, so I'm just like, <laughs> I'm yeah. like, wait, who's play gonna play guy? you? Like, and yeah, I'm yeah. Just, well, yeah. let's let's think about it and come back at another two Augusts. Um, yeah, and uh, check yes, back exactly. In. Right, yeah. you guys. I love you guys. <laughs> this is no. awesome. I love having conversations with both of you and seeing both of you talking to each other is just like warms my heart <laughs> so, because I know you from like different spaces, <laughs> but this was a delight and congratulations both of you on like this amazing book books. Um, Mike, thank you for your acknowledgement. Also, I meant to say <laughs> that was very sweet and unexpected. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Aww, it was so nice. And yeah, well, I am like, it's weird to say I'm proud of you guys, like, because I didn't do anything. <laughs> but, like, it's I, I am like, it, these are like major accomplishments and um, and they're great books. So I'm excited for them to be birthed out into the world. Oh. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having us on. This was yeah, so Oh my God. Thank you for, for being here and you know we went long and thank you for for staying so yes i'm excited for everybody to to read your books 
<laughs> awesome. Me too. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Association. It is produced and edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. To listen to past episodes, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to Goddard in the World in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.